0: Welcome to the Policy and Plainer English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. This season, we've been exploring the sensory experience of food and how that can inform strategies to successfully change our diets. In healthcare, dietary changes can be important for any number of reasons, from reversing common diet-related conditions like cardiovascular disease to maintaining good nutrition as we age. We've looked at diet changes treatment, for example, with Leah Pryor's work in the UVM Medical Center Pain Clinic, and also as prevention. For today's episode, we're looking closely at the prevention piece. And here, prevention isn't just about common advice like eating enough vegetables and reducing sugar intake. Instead, we're looking at building core skills for flexibility in how we eat. That flexibility has an immediate benefit of increasing overall diversity in our diet, and the long-term benefit of increasing our capacity to make specific dietary changes as needed. And we have an underlying premise that very few people will make these changes if it means they won't enjoy their food. In other words, if your diet makes you miserable, it's not a healthy diet. We've had experts guiding us through the steps they take to understand what makes a food more or less enjoyable. This includes how all the senses come together to form our perception of food, identifying what each contributes to the experience, and identifying what most influences our enjoyment of a particular item then applying those attributes to introducing new foods, like the honey crisp apple that crunches like a cheese puff. Health professionals are increasingly incorporating insights from food professionals into their strategy for helping patients make sustainable diet changes. That's most common in treatment, when change needs to happen following certain prescribed guidelines. What about the general prevention part, that flexibility we all should consider cultivating? What if you don't have a live-in sensory analyst to walk you through the process? which, I admit, I do have—my husband is professionally trained in that field. Assuming that you aren't marrying my husband, a lot of the advice for do-it-yourself diet change doesn't fit our particular prevention goals. Think about one of the standard recommendations—tracking the food you eat, keeping a journal of serving size and ingredients and calorie counts. It's the start of the new year as I record this, and I bet many Americans are making resolutions around that kind of food journal. But it doesn't have much to do with enjoyment—or flexibility. It has more to do with don't go near that cookie plate.
1: It's the sensory details that save us, that are the seeds of our creativity. And when something is so programmed, like having to keep a notebook that's punitive about food, it takes away the sensory quality. And memory is all sparked by the senses. That's our guest for this episode. Hi, I'm Alex Johnson, and I am the author of a number of books. Alex is going to help us reconsider the idea of the food journal. My first book is called The Hidden Writer, published by Doubleday, which is Seven Portraits of Creative Lives. Basically around, I was really interested as not only how does somebody become a writer, but stay a writer. And journals or notebooks are the kind of missing link in creative life, and that's one way that I looked at it. The second book I did called Leaving a Trace, published by Little Brown, is a book because I kept doing a lot of NPR, and I would hear people say, oh, I can't keep a journal or whatever, and who would care about my life? And then they proceed to talk about extraordinary things in their life. So I wrote a very practical book. I'm writing currently a, a book in progress, which is a travel memoir, and it's set largely in Southern Italy.
0: Even Oprah has turned to Alex for journal writing insights. In full disclosure, she was also one of the advisors in my Master of Fine Arts program for creative writing. That program was a great introduction to writing.
1: You know how to do it superbly, like everything else you do.
0: Because I was so well-trained by my superb instructors. A pleasure, a pleasure, perfectly put. Leslie University did not pay me for that audio editing. Anyhow, besides doing things like allow me to write a thesis on plot development and cookbooks, a piece of scholarship that went underappreciated in the broader academic world, Fine arts can also tell us a lot about our diets. It's true. Writers are experts in capturing experience. And for every one of us, that experience includes
1: food. So let's start with a story. I know I wrote into a notebook when my father was a month away from dying, and he would be talking about his life. But one thing I wrote in a notebook was that my father really kept thinking about one of those tiered trays of oysters that he and my mother had while visiting Brittany, and when I unpack that, it's not so much about the cold oysters or the delicious, unsalted bread, a butter and bread, but the time really being it was like a very cold day that he was there um, in the company of strangers and feeling a kind of connection, and I thought too of how my father, if he were keeping a journal today My father was in the coffee business, and he traveled all over the world. My father would probably keep a journal now about climate change, which sounds a little grim, but the way that we're returning to forgotten foods, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But one of the things, because of climate change, a lot of coffee is becoming scarcer. And there's something called Robusta, which I think is kind of a great name for uh, that kind of coffee, which is going to be more prominent. And my father would have probably been charting this. I also sent you, Helen, a link by Gita Pandey from the BBC in Delhi, which she called, Why Switch to Eating Grandma's Food? And it's really about the forgotten foods, the foods that are sustainable but actually better for us. Yesterday's New York Times, Kim Severson had a whole piece about The eye to the future in terms of food, what is sustainable, what we're going to be eating, and inevitably what's going to be in our journals, the kind of mushrooms we're going to be eating, the kind of wild greens that we are rediscovering. This story contains so many things.
0: First, there's the sensory, the visual of the tiered trays of oysters, the cold of the oysters against the cold day on the French coast. Oysters, if you've never had one fresh shocked famously taste the way the breeze coming in from the ocean smells, briny and bracing. So that's aroma. And then there's salt and umami, or savoriness, for taste. But it's not just about that, right? It's the context of being with strangers together, something we're all probably thinking about now. I visited the coast of France once, and discovered periwinkles, these little snails that are a project, like a puzzle box, pulling the meat out, and you can entertain yourself for hours at a bar working through a bowl of these being alone, but also together, with the others gathered there on a cold day. Notice also how this conversation about journals is looking back and also looking forward, across generations even. Alex imagines how her father would have used journals today, And in that imagining, she believes he will be both forward and backward looking
1: in response to a changing environment. Joan Didion, who died last week and who wrote in her very first collection, a beautiful essay called On Keeping a Notebook. She said, some morning when the world seems drained of wonder, someday when I'm only going through the motions of doing what I'm supposed to do, which is right, on that bankrupt morning, I will simply open my notebook and it will be there. We are now recording this at the very end of December, and we are on the cusp of New Year's. And what happens exactly at this time every year is around 20 million journals and notebooks are sold every year. And January takes its name from the Roman god of Janus, who's shown in double profile. So he's looking both back and forward. January is a time when we think about New Year's resolutions. And the fact that we have 20 million journals sold at this time isn't just about New Year's resolutions. It's about what we're going to do with the rest of the year. The other notable element is how food
0: in the story is anchored to other points of relevance in each person's life. Her father is remembering traveling with his wife. Alex is remembering her father. And also she's tying this story that she's gathered to other stories she reads today as she researches her books and thinks about more stories she wants to tell. Let's take it back to the quote from the top of the episode about the spirit of these journals.
1: It's the sensory details that save us, that are the seeds of our creativity. And when something is so programmed, like having to keep a notebook that's punitive about food, it takes away the sensory quality. And memory is all sparked by the senses.
0: The restrictive form of food journaling, the kind that's about calorie counting, can have an advantage in the fact that it is so disconnected from our sensory experience of everyday life. Say you need to lose weight ahead of knee surgery, and have a specific number to reach by a specific date. Then yes, pulling the arithmetic of shedding pounds front and center makes all the sense in the world. Say your goal is to get a better understanding of what a serving size is, then weighing and measuring makes sense. I'm sure there are a hundred other examples. Our underlying goal here is more artistic. If we want our diets to be adaptable, we need to build our creativity
1: you will start to find yourself getting beyond the kind of conscious mind and in deeper into where creativity really lies, which is at the sort of intersection of memory and the unconscious.
0: Creativity is not a complete mystery. Basic creativity means we can make new connections, identify new patterns in the world around us in a way that harnesses the power of both our conscious analytical mind and our subconscious. Remember the episode with the different sounds of water pouring? Our mind is already gathering a lot of information about our food environment. I mean, back in the day, the hunter and gatherer day, that awareness was pretty important for survival. And in the first episode, we discussed how a balance between prioritizing familiarity and being able to adjust diet to new circumstances and ecosystems has been crucial from an evolutionary perspective. In other words, we can rest assured that somewhere deep in our genome, we're all hardwired for this creative task. It stands to reason, then, that using the same journal techniques that have helped centuries of artists develop their creative genius can get the rest of us over the threshold for food creativity. And there's some more good news. A lot of us have started without even realizing it.
1: I always say to people, if you have ever kept, if you've ever written down in a notebook, one even just a spiral one, and kept it, thrown scraps of writing into a shoebox whether you know it or not you've been keeping a form of a journal even if you haven't kept scraps of notes you could do it now if you want to get yourself going if you want to somehow get into the trapdoor of your own creativity really do something by hand just sit there write it in the back of a of, you know a mastercard receipt whatever get going
0: part of focusing on this ease of entry comes from the rules of habit formation if you set the bar too high then you guarantee failure we're probably all familiar with that concept. Here, it's more than that. We're also opening the door to the subconscious by not being overly prescriptive. Having an aggressive agenda keeps the whole exercise dominated by our analytical mind. That's not what we want.
1: Why notebooks and journals are so important is because, well, they can have a single focus, but they are not starting out with an agenda. When you start out with the agenda, you are starting from your conscious mind and you're starting sort of very analytically. And I think the thing about notebooks and journals is there's the element of serendipity.
0: There's a distinction between an agenda and a purpose. Purpose is something we do want. The bits of ideas, pictures, scraps, notes, they're going to coalesce around a focus. This isn't the dear diary idea of faithfully documenting every last thing that happened to us in a given day. It's a journal with a theme. And maybe, initially, food isn't even the central theme.
1: My favorite, and I've kept forever, are travel journals. I was born in San Francisco, and my father, because of his work, traveled a lot internationally. So food has always been bare, and travel have always been a very important part of my life. And my parents used to paste into kind of notebooks, postcards, and menus, and all sorts of things.
0: Maybe you aren't a world traveler. Observations about nature, celebrations and milestones, family interviews, gratitude journals. These are common journal themes. Last year, I started a science fiction food journal, a mashup of genre novels, technology writing, futuristic podcast clips, and annoyed notes about the movie Snowpiercer, which I made the mistake of watching on Thanksgiving. I'm thinking next I'll have a sports and food journal. Remember how we perceive food. A lot of it is context. Regardless of the starting focus, simply observing and not overthinking is the first step.
1: Yesterday, and you know how Shutterfly or whatever, there's an algorithm that says your memories from, well, this was my memories from almost exactly the the date that we're talking now. I was in Rome. And when I looked at what the algorithm had sent me, the photos, I thought, oh, what's missing is one photograph. And I didn't photograph this particular food because I was too busy eating it several days in a row. I was in Rome and Rome, there's a very brief window from late December to early January that only in Rome where there's six types of chicory, not necessarily the type that we would associate that you put into salad, but one that is sauteed. And it is one of like the cortoni, the side dishes that you actually have served as a primi of a, a, a first course. And it looks like a mound of spinach, but it was so spectacular that often when I fall asleep at night, among all the other things I think about, that image comes to me. So when the algorithm sent it to me yesterday, I thought, why is it that that keeps coming besides the fact that it was so utterly delicious? And it was because by the time I flew home from Italy, everything was about to shift. Italy itself already was having. The pandemic there. When I think of that chicory, really, if I unpack that, it's about those afternoons where I was sitting with my husband and my good friend Paola, who's a doctor, and the conversation we had. What's not recorded is how we went just across the piazza and went into one of the oldest churches in Rome with those great golden mosaics, and at the bottom of which, in the mosaic, was a woman who is throwing grain to her chickens and there's all sorts of animals eating and it's the whole thing about journals is how we feed ourselves and a lot of times I think that's why food does become a theme that goes through your journals regardless of whatever else you're writing about.
0: This example illustrates another step which is turning the corner from gathering scraps of observations to building something with them. In a writer's case, it may be an essay. In our case, it may be brunch. There are a few subtle points in the chicory anecdote that I want to draw out here. The first is the different media referenced: A prompt from online, pictures that capture the look of dishes, written notes to capture details like the places visited or the months the ingredient is available. And Alex is a writer, so I'm willing to bet there are snatches of elegant prose that occurred to her that she threw in as well, without worrying about full sentences or paragraphs. The second point is the retrospective element. Alex looked backwards and thought about what made that dish memorable, and it was an expression of a point in time. For many of us, when we think of collecting snapshots of our days or our travels, social media platforms come first to mind. That's superficially similar to what we're talking about, but those platforms each have a prescribed format, they're focused on immediacy, and they're performative. You're sharing for an audience today, not saving for personal reflection tomorrow.
1: Instagram has become the daily, hourly, sometimes journal. It's funny, but why people, I think, historically couldn't keep diaries is they were very afraid of anybody reading what they really thought. Instagram is kind of the opposite. It is performative, it is purposefully posting to an audience. One of the things that, you know, we often talk about is how the life that's presented on Instagram or Facebook, sometimes there is a big divergence between what's really happening in that life. And what's so interesting about notebooks is really being able to even go back through these scraps that we've written and realized that you've had a much, much deeper, richer life than you. You weren't as depressed as you thought. But I think that this way of turning inward and the pandemic has inevitably turned everyone Inward
0: If social media isn't a great vehicle for getting started on collecting observations for a journal, one thing that is a good vehicle is old-fashioned paper and pencil. Electronic devices can be a tool for collecting observations in the moment, but Alex recommends bringing it back to something tactile. Doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to be long. This is a bit like using all available senses for flavor, bringing in physical objects and the motion of your hand for your journal. Think of it like the texture part of our food exploration. Again. Tactile. This old-school recommendation isn't nostalgia. Recording by hand slows us down. It allows frictionless change between formats to capture ideas, words, sketches, diagrams. Recording on scraps of paper reminds our internal critic that this isn't a piece for publication. It isn't a report for work. It doesn't need critique. And adding that texture, your hand moving over the paper, makes the memory more complex and helps secure ideas for our subconscious to mold the background as we go about the rest of our day.
1: I think the thing is that people should really trust the fact that just like cooking, something done by hand jogs memory, it jogs the creativity, and you have to be a little patient with this, which is why I say turn off your devices, turn off Instagram, sit with a simple notebook.
0: We already have a start about what goes in the notebooks, observations that can group around a purpose or theme, food by itself, food in combination with other things, food caught sneaking into a journal about travel, whatever has relevance to your life. The other content piece is details. Even if they seem irrelevant, if a detail stands out, record it. If no detail stands out, look
1: for one. I think if we think of journals as a savings account, that's accruing interest and that it is waiting, these details are waiting to surface. And a lot of times when you do get stuck, you can go back to a notebook, And you find that one concrete detail that then blooms into a story or blooms into an essay or a drawing or whatever. Dinner blooms into dinner, maybe a salad. That alone is just being flexible. If you see that what your job is, as it were, is just to faithfully record and not to ask, why did I write that down? The the Joan Didion that I mentioned on Keeping a Notebook, her essay, she asked herself, why did I write down? that there was 720 tons of soot that fell on New York. And she said, I wrote it down because I wanted to remember. For a food application of this, consider something like
0: exploring the details of a single ingredient and the associations that sparks.
1: I am sort of just seem to be obsessed these days by fennel. I've always loved roasted fennel, but I'm drinking fennel tea. I'm cooking, you know, fennel with Italian spicy sausage and and ricotta salata. I am reading Hildegard, the 12th century practical mystic, with the curative properties that she found about fennel.
0: If you're venturing into a field where you don't have a lot of experience, asking basic questions about what details you observe can be a way to get started.
1: Food and place, those two things take any detail and ask yourself what are five memories that I associate with this? Or so as I said about myself in th- sitting at those tables in Rome, if I had photographed that wonderful plate of sautéed chicory, I would have had to say, who's at the table? What was the conversation? What did you do just a- an hour afterwards? What did you see? What did you notice? Like Leah asking patients to describe what the quinoa looked like in the salad
0: bowl, even if the associations have nothing to do with food. Even if the patients have no idea what the heck quinoa is except the stuff that looks like little pebbles. If I'm being honest, quinoa reminds me of miniature frog eggs that would hatch minuscule tan frogs if you gave it enough time. It is a seed after all. And frog legs are a delicacy, right? What if you had seeds that you could grind into a spice that tasted like frog? Would removing the amphibians from the equation help more people realize why frog legs are so popular they're driving some frog populations to extinction? and also solve that extinction problem at the same time. Are the fake meat people getting it all wrong by focusing on chicken and hamburger? I did mention that my own food journals trend towards science fiction.
1: The main thing is to to trust doing something by hand. There's a certain kind of physics that happens when we move our hands, not caring about the writing, just getting details down that are pleasurable. That pleasurable point, that's not a throwaway line. If there's
0: one thing that Alex has mastered, it's building depth from getting serious about identifying what's positive. In writing workshops, she'll lead with having students identify hot spots parts in a draft manuscript that really sing for the audience. And why not? Suppose you take this approach to the extreme, keep the best parts, drop everything else, and do successive iterations of that. You'll end up with something brilliant at the end. As long as the student can understand why those parts work and build their skills to repeat the performance consistently which sounds a lot like the advice we've been getting from food professionals about diet change. Start with what you enjoy and build from there, as long as you understand that enjoyment well enough to translate it into some personal flavor principles you can use to bring in new foods. In food, recording the details of past pleasurable experience can also free us to explore new options without fear of losing what worked. That's relevant on a micro level, like if you're getting into recipe development, and also a macro one, There's a fundamentally positive element of food culture today focused on authenticity, traditional food ways, and recovering forgotten foods. At the same time, cuisines evolve, and a bigger goal may be to both honor the past and look to the future.
1: Here it's from the New York Times, Melissa Clark had a recipe for braised chicken. And when I looked at it, I thought that's exactly the dish my mother used to make. And it's the kind of dish that when I fall asleep at night, I often think, oh, gee, I wish I were back where my mother was making that dish. Of course, this is a totally new twist. There are no more button mushrooms. There's chanterelles, there's creme fish, there's lemon zest. There's all sorts of things that Melissa Clark has done. But I think it would be interesting just using food if to talk about how chicken, how something as simple as chicken was done over several generations and what's done now. You know, you look at TikTok and you see 14-year-olds talking about their new version of how to roast a chicken. Yes, I'll link the chicken
0: piece and all the other items Alex has mentioned from our show notes at planarenglish.org. These were all articles she came across browsing the morning before our interview. Once you get started collecting connections, they appear everywhere. And there you have our little instruction manual for journals to build food creativity and adaptability to shifting diets. It doesn't need to be much of a time commitment or even consistently maintained. For goodness sake, you can start a scrapbook of foods you like Note the item and occasion each time you enjoy one of your favorites. Then sometime when you've got a quiet moment, reflect on those lists and remember eating those foods, and jot down what stands out most in your memory. That hits the cardinal points of having a single purpose, observing without analysis, collecting observations for future review, reflection, and recording details. Sometime later you can comb the details for patterns, and make your own flavor leader principles and, I don't know, invent a pasta like we discussed last episode. A few minutes of time spread out over a month, and you've got the start of a brilliant future in food appreciation, possibly also in essay writing, which leaves one skill set as of yet unexplored, cooking. We tackle that on the next episode of the Policy in Plainer English
1: podcast. I would say if you're having New Year's resolutions, I hope it's around food. I hope it's around pleasure. I hope it's around memory and that your hand moves very, very fast over the surface of whatever you're using to write.
0: This season of Policy in Plainer English is supported by a grant from HRSA and the Northern Border Regional Commission. Find out more in our show notes at Planerenglish.org.